This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. It's gonna bring up uh, the victories at the Australian Masters. You're a two-time champion of that event. Huge wins. Um, looking back, what's sort of your memories of, of both of those victories? Now, uh, the first one was uh, well, in 1992. I um. I grew up in Melbourne, obviously, and I'd played that course a little bit, and I lived only five, ten miles away. Um, in 1992, I was playing, and I was playing pretty good, and I actually was two shots in front going into the final nine and stumbled. I didn't play very good on the back nine. I ended up coming fourth. So the next year, I sort of found myself in the same spot. I was playing pretty good, and I was I think I was third last group, so I was four under going into the last day and I was coming, uh, I think I was coming to tied for fourth and Peter Senior was winning. He was like four in front of us. He was eight under. He'd shot 65 on the Saturday. So Sunday, I you know, I had no plans on winning. You know, I it was an interesting day. I got, you know, I was driving to the course and got cut off by a couple of people and normally, you know, you yell out the window or you get your road rage and get angry or get up tight about it. For some reason, I didn't care. I just said, all right, then you go. And I just felt very relaxed. And I got off on the range. I actually wasn't hitting it that good on the range. And I just had this little voice that said, you know, you're squeezing them a bit. Let's just open up your stance so you can feel like you can rotate around it a bit better. And, and that really worked. And I birdied the first couple of holes and then I birdied the couple other holes. And then by the back nine, I was just sort of between me and Peter Senior. I'd gone past Greg Norman and Craig Parry. They were in the group ahead of me and they weren't having much of a day. And So it sort of became me and Pete and I birdied, I think I birdied 10 and then I birdied 11 and I birdied 13 and then I birdied 15 and and I was still two behind going up the last. And I hit a driver and a three iron, which a par four. Not many people have to hit three irons. <laughs> that's, that's old. Sure, there wasn't a par five. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and I, I stuck it to like a foot and a half and, and made birdie. And, you know, 15 minutes later, Pete three-putted the last green and we're into a playoff. And, you know, I think that rattled him a little bit that he sort of had it won all day. And, and it also helped me in that I never thought I was going to win. I was just sort of hoping for a strong finish, which I did. But I shot seven under the last day and put the pressure on him. And funny things happened in in golf, and I, I won the playoff with a par. He missed a short putt on the playoff hole as well, and, and I ended up winning. And it was fun too because my during the, early on in the week in, in Australia, you can bet on the golf. I don't know, you know, we can bet on anything in Australia, but I actually put like hundred dollars on myself that at the start of the week just for a bit of fun, and I forgot all about that until I won. My dad goes, "You beauty, you just won five thousand dollars." That was like fifty to one, so. I won a little extra bet there, and then I played in uh, 96. I came second again. I was right there at the lead, and I bogeyed the last two holes and lost to Craig Perry. So, yeah, there's always ups and downs in golf, and I learned from those things. And 1998, I was just playing really good uh, leading into the tournament. I played 
I'd played in uh, Bangkok or Thailand and then I'd played in Perth and then I played in Sydney and I came eighth in Sydney and I played really great on the Australian. It's a tough course. I hit like 63 greens in regulation but putted terrible and should have probably nearly won that as well if I had putted any good. But I just worked on my putting for a couple of days, found something and Again, I bet myself to win that week because I thought there's no way I'm going to lose this tournament. I'm hitting it too good now. I've worked out my putting. And I went out and I shot 10 under the first day. Um, I struggled a bit the second day, gave a couple of silly shots away. But that generally tends to happen after such a low score. You, you back it up a little bit. And then the weekend, I shot at uh, like 7 under, 6 under, and I shot 24 under and won by 5. Stroke. So that was sort of a tournament. That was probably the one tournament I've ever played in that I knew I was going to win. I just, you know, and I even got up at the dinner before the tournament. It was like the 20th anniversary of the event, and they got past winners up, and they talked about my win in 93. And they said, hey, what do you think this week? I said, I'm going to win this week. And everyone, like, snickered and laughed. And But I was that confident in it that I, I knew I was going to win. And one of those rare weeks where you just know everything's on the money. I knew the course well. And this felt really good, and it worked out nice. I always ask like in the guys too, like when you when you win an event of that magnitude and you're holding the trophy, does it is it a surreal feeling like in '93 that you've accomplished what you've accomplished? Does it take a few days to sort of hit you? Is it when you're driving home with the, the, the jacket and the trophy that oh my god, I've won the Australian Masters? Like that must be one hell of a moment to actually live. That you know. <laughs> 93 was a difficult one because, you know, I wasn't expected to win. And I, I know, like, that night we went back to my golf club and there was TV cameras and we had a long night there. And then the next day I had to go play in a pro-am for Craig Parry at his club and, you know, I was not feeling that great And after a long night. And then I would went on, like, the Tonight Show that night and then I got flown up to Sydney and then I was playing a tournament there. So I was... The next week I, I missed the cut by one. You know, I was... From all the extracurricular stuff, I just didn't have my head on on the game, so it, it did. It, that hurt, you know, the following week. But it was a blur, basically. It was all all good fun and everything, but I don't remember much about it. And then '98 was interesting too, because I I um I had my card on the PGA Tour, but I I wasn't going to get in those early events because I'd come through the Q School. That's why I went to Australia and played. And I won the event, and I actually really didn't do much that night. I had to get up at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. I was flying back to America. And so I'd won, get a real early flight out of Melbourne, flying back, get to LA because I'm going to play the Tucson Open. And I kept hearing my name coming over the the um, loudspeaker. You know, this is basically before cell phones. You know, you used to have cell phones as big as your foot in those days. So no one really had them all then. And 1998, and I kept hearing my name over, and I had to pick up a phone, and it was my manager. And he said, you're not going to believe this, because I'll just run through it real quick, because in those days, you could enter a tournament PGA event on the Friday. So up until the Friday before the tournament, you can enter a tournament, and then also you can enter up to an hour after the close of play. So they were playing in Phoenix or something, the PGA Tour headquarters is on the east coast in Ponte Vedra. But so people were allowed to enter you know, up to 8 or 9 o'clock eastern time that night because they were playing in Phoenix. 
So I was in the tournament, and then when I got to LA, this is what my manager explained. He said, like, 25 people entered the tournament at the last minute, and now you're not in it. So I actually ended up having to fly back to Orlando where I lived, and I didn't even get to play the next week. I thought I was going to head to Tucson, you know, just won the Masters hot and go play, and next minute I'm on a bummer because I'm not playing at all that week. And then the following week I didn't get in either, so I actually flew back to Australia for the last tournament. And, of course, I didn't know good there because I was so tired from flying back and across the time zones. So it's funny how things just, you're on a high and next minute you're on a, a bummer again. So I actually didn't play that good in 1998 until the final part of the season. But, um, yeah, highs, lows, all that, people sort of don't see all that stuff. Well, it's got to be cool to still look at the manual and those things are on it, right? You you, you got two big ones. That's that's. Uh... It's a hell of an accomplishment. Um, also, I always thought, like, as an American watching that time of year, I always loved, I know the, the Masters is not in the rotation anymore, which I think is sad because I thought it was such a great tournament. Then you had the PGA in the in the Open over in Australia. And I was like, I always thought it had been really cool if they would have made one of those like a World Golf Championship for that time of the season because – some it's great visual. A lot of the courses over there are fantastic. I always thought they could have made one of those events. I mean, it's already they were big, huge events, but to even bring in you know more, I always thought it'd been a great world championship if they could have ever elevated it to that level. I don't know what your thoughts are on that because, like I said, as a golf fan over here, I loved watching them, and especially they were kind of all close together, and it kind of felt like you're watching like three majors, like they were huge. Um, I don't know what your thoughts were on that, if they could have ever elevated that up to the next level. Well, that would make too much sense, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you, you, I think I think there's a little bit of a a um, miss, the no miss, whatever you want to call it, with um, that because they had the they had a world golf event down in Australia in maybe 2000. It was the match play. Yep, I remember that. And it was a it was a bad decision to have the match play there because one it started on like January the third so people missed the new year they were flying down there not everyone went because they didn't want to go to Australia and you went down there and you lost in the first round you're flying home again right. so I think I think that brought back a lot of bad um, info to people like why the hell do I want to go all the way down to Australia and so far and I'm you know I'm the taxes and the, all this and then I don't want to go down there that time of year. I'm going to be with my family and all that. So I think this, the time of year actually hurt it, but I think it's a great idea. I just wish someone would be able to, to do it and guarantee that all those guys were going to be there. I mean, we've been lucky in the Australian Open. They had Rory McIlroy come a couple of years and Jordan Spieth won it as well and he went down yeah. there. So they've had a few good players go down there, but not the ultimate, you know, the whole list of them that, Australian fans probably deserve to get to see here and there. And it's great for our players too. A lot of guys, again, it's tough. You know, our, our people back in Australia expect Jason Day and Adam Scott to to come home and play those events, you know, just like I used to and like Greg Norman used to and Craig Perry used to. You know, we sort of felt an obligation to do it. But now, you know, there's so much other stuff going on. A lot of guys don't even go go back from so that the field is filtered down a little bit and um, even though they do have normally get a really good winner out of it there are it's just not the 
not what we did in the 90s and early 2000s. The stats for those events have probably dropped off a little bit and the, and the prize money has not increased. So it's just not, it's not um, probably not advisable by management for, to their players to even consider it sometimes. I don't know those guys when they win it, you know, even the guys from the States. I remember when Spieth won it, they look, they look pretty excited about winning the Australian Open. Like, that's one you can tell they're proud to have on the mantle. Like, and for, I remember for that one for Spieth, that kind of jump started him into that great season, you know, when he went down there. So I would love to see it as a WGC, especially for the time of the year where it's cold over here. I, I think you would get, I think you would get fans watching if you could put on prime time in the United States. I think it would make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think the hard, I think the big thing, is sorry. The big thing is where does the money come from? So that's the hardest thing for Australia is that we only have six major cities, and the, the money would have to come from somewhere else. So that we're not they're not going to raise it in Australia, especially because the Australian Open tennis is on you know a few weeks later. That's where all the prize money and and sponsorship goes in Australia. The, the Grand Prix race in March and the tennis in January. So golf unfortunately just gets relegated and the money would have to come from overseas, which I don't know why it couldn't, but that's I think that's one of the biggest hurdles they face with it. Well, we have a President's Cup coming up in Australia at Royal Melbourne. Um, I mean, one of the best golf courses in the world. I've never played it, but that's my style of golf. Um, so it's kind of two parts. What makes that Sandbelt region of Australia you know, so great for golf. And is is Royal Melbourne your favorite, or is there another one over there that is kind of your favorite to play? And what should we kind of expect from the competition? What kind of player will play, um, you know, Royal Melbourne really well? Does it favor any type of player, in your opinion? Yeah, Royal Melbourne's always been my favorite course in the world. Um, I never actually played that great there, <laughs> unfortunately, but I've played there, you know, probably two, three hundred times, and. It, it just it's just an amazing course. The bunkering is amazing. The greens are incredible. The design is the great thing, and we touched on this with Michael Clayton in my podcast, how Royal Melbourne is playable by a 30 handicapper or a PGA Tour star. There's always a way to play each hole, and it's unlike a lot of the TPC things where unless you can hit it 250 over the water, you can't play that golf course. So... Royal Melbourne, there's always an opening. You can go like the six holes, one of the great holes of the world. The pros can sort of fly over the bunker and try and cut the dog leg, but if they go too far, they've got no shot to the left flag. You know, there's all these different things, but your, your amateur bad golfer can trundle the drive up the left, knock a forward up near the front right, and two-putt across the green. So they can sort of play the holes. Every hole's playable, and that's the great thing about Royal Melbourne, and I also used to love it because you know it's not as um, it doesn't happen like this anymore because of such a, the ball and the clubs and everything just go too far now. But on any given day, no matter what the wind is at Royal Melbourne, you could hit every club in your bag every day, no matter east, north, south, west wind. It didn't matter. You'd hit all fourteen of you in your club. So it sort of challenged you to every every solution, every shot in your bag, and you know. Like I said, now we lose some of that because the, the ball's going so far, so you don't get to play all those clubs. But that was the great challenge of it. The, for people to look out for it, the greens are generally really hard and fast. Um, they stop, you know, but not the immediate stop. It's like the one-two bounce and then maybe spin a little bit. There's a lot of contours, so you can feed it into holes. You know, 
that that's a challenge. It's sort of like Augusta where a lot of the time the best way to get to the hole is actually hit away from the hole and let it come back around somehow. So it takes a little bit of thinking. It takes a bit of, I think, a bit of course knowledge to play it. Um, and the whole sand belt, the, the great thing about it, I had one of my friends come over there a number of years ago with me to caddy for me. And we were at Victoria Golf Club, which is actually right across the street from Royal Melbourne. And um, again, they're all close together like that. Um, there was something, they were digging a drain and somewhere behind one of the um, grandstands we were looking at. And they, he couldn't believe it because he's a builder himself. And he looked down, he goes, Hugo, look at this, look at this turf here. He couldn't believe that it was, um, you know, all sand underneath. So that's the beauty of it in that if it rains, you know, if it rains over here, you have puddles and waterfalls for a couple of days until it all dries out. But on the sand belt, because it's such a beautiful sand base, the water just sneaks through and, and eliminates itself and goes down into the underground. So you, you get great playing conditions. You know, you get a bit of rain and the course just softens up slightly where you get firm and it bounce, plays a bit bouncy. So you, you've got all these variables of of conditions that you play in and they're basically all the same. It's generally a much firmer type of golf than softer type of golf. So it brings everyone into play and it, it creates a lot more shots and, uh, you know, you don't play by numbers as much. You you have a spot you got to hit to. It could be... 150 yards of the hole, but you need to hit 135 yards and five yards right of the hole. Little, little things like that. So it's it's a great challenge. Obviously, a lot of the Americans have played there and they can adapt pretty well anyway. But, you know, I always thought that Royal Melbourne would be a, a big advantage for the international team because of the Australians in it. But a lot of the Aussies haven't played. I don't think Jason Day's played there a heck of a lot. Adam Scott's played there a few times. Like, but when we won there in 98, we had Craig Parry and Nobolo and Norman and Elkington, all those guys, and they'd played there a lot. So we used the home advantage there. So I don't know if there is a home court advantage at Royal Melbourne, but we need to win. <laughs> International only we only won it once. It's going to it's gonna die like the Ryder Cup wanted to die until Europe started winning it. So we need to challenge and step up. I was just going to say the best thing that actually could happen is the Americans lose this thing because right now I think everyone just sort of assumes it's going to be a kind of a walkover, right? But and it, yeah. it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's going to be more competitive than people think. If uh, you know the, the the world the world has a lot of really good players as well that you look on that team and some young guns. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, do you think the golf course will be long enough? Do they have some room there to make the tee so it's not? Because I think, I, like you're saying, it's not as interesting to watch if if DJ's hitting driver nine iron or wedge in every one of these par fours. Then that topography of getting the ball to use the slope and how it's originally designed can kind of get lost a little bit. Have, do they have, do they have enough room on the facility to make it long enough to challenge the players so that still that part of the golf course is still uh, relevant or it's 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 needed per se versus just hit it to the flag and you know wedge it up there. They really have no room. Um, there's really they can't really stretch any hole. And the the reason being is I don't know if everyone knows this, but the course they play at Royal Melbourne or at Royal Melbourne is 36 holes. They have an east course and a west course. And for the tournament, they use 12 holes of the west and six of the east. And the reason is that 
when you play the east course, you play the first four holes and you cross a road. And then you play three more holes and you cross another road. And then you come back again and get back. And then the, the west course, you cross a road for, I think, four or five holes as well. So they don't want all the gallery and all the people and all the players crossing roads. So they, they put all the holes on the one big boundary that's the main part of the course. So that's why the course is split up into into the 12 and 6 holes. So most people that see Royal Melbourne, they go, yeah, I'm going to go play Royal Melbourne. They really never, ever get to play the composite course because they've got to play the east or the west. So, and because it's on the one big boundary, there's it's maxed out. There's really nowhere to go. They're not going to move Alistair McKenzie design greens that have been there forever and look awesome. They can only move tees and they really don't have far to move it except for a couple of holes that it would change the character of the hole that's probably not not that important. The, the big thing is weather. If you get the wind into you or down, you know, that, that's going to change how the holes play rather than lengthen them. Where, where do you think golf course architecture sort of lost its way? And it's, it seems like there's a resurgence coming back of using the ground and not having forced carries and waterfalls all over. And uh, do you think we're starting to get to the point where designers are getting it? and it's coming back a little bit, and do you think it got overdone in the 90s and early 2000s of golf courses that were just didn't make sense for even the average club member to enjoy? Yeah, I think they're coming back a little bit, and I, and I think the reason being is a lot of the the newer courses that are great or, you know, in the recent courses or even renovations are, um, are seeing that golf is not just about hosting it. Tournament. So you don't need to make every course water. I, you know, I think I mentioned the TPC era before where they you know, had all the island greens and road ties and all this stuff everywhere that were fun. But then you, you see that video of that guy playing the, the uh, island green in 166 shots or whatever he did, the, the hat guy. I mean, you can't play golf like that. So it, it's, I think everyone, at, at one point, the main architects all wanted to one-up each other. Well, here's this hole now. You go beat that one. Like, look how good this hole is. You've got a 280-yard carry and there's alligators on the left and stuff on the right. And, you know, it's just they were trying to one-up one another. But I think what happened is eventually a lot of the people that started putting money in, and Clayton's talked about this really great on my podcast, is that they don't care about pro golf. They're, they're interested in the golfer. So they're designing better golf courses that aren't stretched out too crazy, that aren't ridiculous, that they're going to lose 15 balls in a round. And, and obviously they're trying to make it more fun for the for the everyday guy and not, not just crazy hard for making, you know, making the course more on aesthetics and playability rather than toughness. So I think they're doing a, a pretty good job of that. Um, you know, but people do have a disfigured belief for... Um, understanding of golf because for the most part when they watch they, they play their club on a Saturday and their weekend play or whatever and then they're watching golf on TV and all they're seeing is these courses on TV so they have no real basis of opinion on themselves because they're not playing these courses they're only seeing them so and they see damn that hole looks good look at the the blimp the shot from the blimp the grass cut this way and the the water down there looks beautiful, but if they went out and played it, they'd want to strangle themselves after five holes, I'm sure. So yeah. it's you've got to really look after, you know, in golf dying, I think, well, not dying, I don't think it's dying, but people say that. the In that, most of the, the courses 
were built two for two reasons. One, to try and hold a tournament to get exposure and two, to sell real estate. So the courses that were built to try and get tournaments were too friggin' hard and for most guys to play, so they're not going to play them. And, well, they play them once and never come back. And the other one, the real estate deal, is most of those courses were only interested in selling land for houses rather than the course itself. So you get the junky course with nice houses around it. But you'll find you know, a lot of the, the courses that are out in the way. I've never been to Sand Hills. I've heard that's awesome. Um, you know, it's just a course. It's nothing else there. Same with Barn Boogle in Tasmania. It's just a golf course. So I think a lot of the stuff they've seen is we're going to design for the golf hearted and they're going to enjoy it and they're going to want to come back. And they're, they're not going to lose 50 balls in, in the process. Yeah, the one that comes to my mind in Chicagoland here where I'm at is Cog Hill after they redid it trying to get a U.S. Open. And I, you know, I can't imagine what a 15 handicap shoots out there. I mean, it's for, you know, the bunkers are, it's, it's brutal. And, you know, there hasn't even been a tour event back there since. I thought it was a better track beforehand. I, I get what they were trying to do, but now for the average 15 handicap to go out there, they're going to shoot a million. I mean, they can yeah. say it's cool. They played it, but it can't be enjoyable. They just don't have That's right. they, they don't have the game to be able to stop an iron on the thing. You know, it's so yeah. high up in the air. With, with I think Reese Jones, we did it, and there was one we went and played afterwards. Where it's like, oh, they better get a U.S. Open because if not, this is just pointless. Like the average guy would get the living crap kicked out of him out there. It's really hard. Um, and on the flip side, I go out to the Sand Hill region of Nebraska a lot to play golf. Um, out to Dismal River, and I played Sand Hills. And what Cor Crenshaw did out there, it's exactly what you're talking about. I haven't been to Australia to play, but you could, you can have a 15 or 20 handicap, enjoy it, and then you can have a low handicap be challenged. They did such a brilliant job. Well, the land is so perfect to make a link-style golf course. But it's my favorite golf course on the face of the earth that I've been lucky enough to play is Sand Hills in Mullen, Nebraska. So if you ever get the chance to go out there, if you love, which sounds like you love the same style of golf I do, of sand-based and wind is a factor in you have to shape different shots to get the right trajectory to get close to the pin. It's simply not hit and wedge. It is, it's just beyond brilliant. And like I said, there's nothing out there. It's just silence. It's, it's, there's a reason why it's fourth or fifth or whatever, sixth in the world. It's that good. So I'm glad to see like even what uh, Mr. Kaiser's doing on his courses, like up in Wisconsin or the new stuff he's doing up at Sand Valley. It's playable. It's fun. It's fun golf. And I'm glad to see some of the, the resurgence of, you know, Seth Rayner golf courses and bringing back sort of playable golf courses, but yet still challenging people. To me, it makes a lot of sense of where it's going. I can see why Mr. Kaiser has been successful with his endeavors of, of having kind of the resort golf he has because every level can go and play it and enjoy it. And it's, I think it's great for the game. Yeah, and the golf is for the masses. It's not just for the few. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've got a couple other quick hitters here, and I'll get you out of Dodge. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Um, was going to throw at you some uh, Australian players that I'm assuming you've played with, and give me a few, two or three thoughts if I can throw their names out there, if that's all right for you. Let me know if you're ready. Okay. Yep. Steve Elkington. Uh, how many words have I got? <laughs> oh, it's, it's your form. I'm, I'm good as long as we can go. El- Elks are... Elk's a great guy. Obviously, he's a little misunderstood in Australia because he didn't spend a lot of time there. He came over here for college and everything, but he's a true Aussie. Like, he loves Australia more than anything. He is helpful to any, he'll help anyone. I guarantee it. Any, any person that asks him a question, he'd have a 
golf related. He'd have a great answer back from trying to help him. He lives and breathes golf and wants everyone to get better. And that's sort of why we did the secret golf platform. But, you know, I wouldn't say Elk's an underrated player. Obviously, he had great success, but he um, he probably could could have had more success than he did. Who knows why? He's great swing, great short game, great everything. But I love him. He's he's a really really great guy. He's been awesome to me. And um, you know, pity we don't get to see him play anymore on the Champions or whatever. But he's got great ideas for golf in the future, and I, I reckon he'll be a stand up name in in what's coming up in in golf not just instruction but maybe um lots of other things he's got he's got big ideas Stuart appleby i never spent a lot of time with stewie he's a little bit younger than me he went through the the golf program obviously had a a terrible time with his wife being killed over there and in, in europe that year and but he won i think he won nine or ten times on the pga tour so he had a yeah, great, great career um, he's been injured for a while now. I don't really spend a lot of time with Stewie, but you know, obviously, what he went through to come back from that, he's showed a lot of heart, and and hopefully, you know, I know he's keen just from speaking to a few people that he's keen to try and get fit and get ready for the Champions Tour. So maybe he's not done with yet. Speaking of Champions Tour, it's doing pretty well pretty quickly, which is not a surprise here. Uh, Rod Pampling. Yeah, Pamps, again, he was from Queensland. I don't know Pamps that well. We've played a little bit together, but he's always strong, strong hitter. Um, I wouldn't call him a grinder. He was a good player. I classify grinder as someone that gets the most out of their ability. He had, he had a lot of ability. But he, as a grinder, in, in my sense, I mean, he plays a lot. He goes and plays a lot of tournaments. And I think because he loves it, I think he just loves playing golf. So he'll find his little niche out there because he's obviously just turned 50 and he'll be keen and stronger and more eager to um, perform out there. And I bet he'll, he'll knock a few over pretty soon. Robert Allenby. Robert's interesting. <laughs> Robert gets a, a bad rap. Robert's probably one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet off the golf course. On, he probably gives it a little bit of a hard time, but off the golf course, he'd give you the, Shirt off his back, he'd do absolutely anything for you. He's raised over $30 million for charity. In fact, I just wrote him the other week. One of my best friends at home had written me and, and told me, unfortunately, his sister's son had been diagnosed with leukemia, and he wrote me and asked me, why, and the first person I got in touch was with Robert. Robert called him, emailed him, set it up. He's got everything planned to try and give him the best Um care that he can give from him that's the type of person he is he's um you know he went through a rough patch with what happened in Hawaii his game has not been as good since then but that's just mental scars rather than the ability he was probably one of the the fiercest competitors you'd ever meet you know he had a 7-0 and playoff record at one point there he just, he just wanted to bury everyone and he had a great game and he's uh he's sort of the same age as Appleby too and they'll turn 50 pretty close to another and hopefully he can get out there. I'm going to try help him get out there and get his uh, golf back in order with the Champions Tour coming up. But misunderstood, really nice person once you know him, if people give him the chance. Peter Senior. Now, underrated, yes. So I think not not in Australia. Pete used to win everything in Australia. Um, but overseas, he, didn't, he played in Europe and won a bunch of times in Europe. Never really played much in America except on the Champions Tour and did okay there. But, you know, Peter, 
he's he's one of those guys right at the start there I talked about when I looked at golf swings. Everyone thought he had a wicked, funky-looking swing, but he used to do the same thing. He'd shoot 64 every week and, and feature in all the tournaments. So obviously he had something going on in, in his swing. Initially, I didn't understand it or see it, but when I did my research and looked over everything, I saw exactly what he was up to, and he's one of the models that I use quite a bit in my teaching to show people the dynamics of the swing. And very quiet guy. Um, I actually always played pretty well with Pete. I had a couple of course records playing with him and managed to beat him in the playoffs. So I wish I had played with him more often rather than against him. Greg Norman. Greg Norman, obviously my idol growing up. He was the king at that time growing up in Australia, I met him first time when I was 12. I had my 15th birthday party with him, got to play with him a, a fair bit. So um, obviously an amazing golfer. He could pretty much do anything. I don't think out of anyone I ever played with, I saw anyone hit the ball as he did, better than he did. Um, got killed a few times with chip-ins and and self-inflicted kills a couple of times where he, he messed himself up. But I think that's just his aggressive nature. He probably he did a lot for Australian golf. A lot of the guys you see today, Adam Scott, myself, all those guys grew up watching him. So he was our benchmark and he's always been pretty good to the Australian guys. You know, I got in touch with him when I got in the Masters at Augusta one year and asked him if I could play a practice round with him and he more than readily agreed to do it and the same in a British Open. So he's always he's always there to help the Aussie guys and and obviously he doesn't play much anymore but he's he's you know, we could all use him as a business magnate tool as well, the way he's branched his logo and his name out and he's he's one of the legends of Australia. I am assuming you you spent time uh, in the past with this gentleman, but a true le- true legend of Australian golf, Peter Thompson. Yeah, I didn't really get to see Peter play. You know, I've seen him hit a few balls here and there, but not tournament golf, um, except for the old videos and what have you. So I knew Peter more in a different role, and he used to commentate on all the tournaments in Australia. So I got to meet him a bunch of times through that, and he was always complimentary, always liked my game. And and the, the best thing about him was his simplicity. He would, you know, there's a famous story like he someone said to him, you know, how do I get my five iron to spin back, Peter? And he goes, well, how far do you hit your five iron? And they said, 150 yards. He goes, well, why do you want it to spin back? You need it to go. <laughs> and then you know, another guy, how, how do I get, how do I, I'm not playing my bunker shots very well. How do I improve? And he says, don't hit it in there. Like just real simple, not necessarily smart ass talk. It's just right. common sense if you think about it. So he was very direct and, and to the point. He was, he was good in that regard. And, and he always knew what, he said was what he meant so you can't knock a person for that and obviously five opens and and even the challenge of you know people saying to him that he wasn't that good a player because he never won or he only won once in america and do all that and he he said all right and at 55 five years after he could have turned played the champions two he came over and played like one season and won nine times and then left you know he didn't say anything about it but that was his statement like I'm pretty good. Take that. I'll see you later. Yeah. I mean, you don't win this many opens as he did without being absolute legend, world class. I mean, you, it's impossible if you're just too good, right? It's uh, 
You can't fake your way into five open championships. No. Uh, last one I have for you. We've talked about some great golf courses in Australia. What's your favorite, maybe one or two golf courses outside of Australia that you've gotten to play that you just absolutely fall in love with? Uh, it's been a long time. I played, I think, you know, I loved, I love Scotland. I love playing golf in Scotland. Um, it reminds me a bit of home, just the style of the courses, you know, minus a few trees and that. But I've only ever played St. Andrews once, which is a bummer to me. I've got to try and play it again one time. I never got to play a tournament there. I played one round there when I was 17. I, I won the Doug Sanders uh, World Tournament. I was in Scotland to play the final of it. And I went over a bit early and I got to play at St. Andrews. I shot two under and that's my... So I'm two under for St. Andrews, but I only ever played it once. I'd love to do that again. And, and, you know, I have been back there in the past and walked around, had a look, but never actually played it again. So that would be cool to do. And Muirfield, I only got to play once too in a, in a tournament, uh, not a tournament, just a, a game when I was an amateur. We, um, we were over there doing amateur stuff in the world, uh, the Eisenhower Cup, and we got to play there. That was amazing course but there's so many good courses over there like all the british open courses are fantastic with the options and the the design the pot bunkers and all that i, I kind of love that style of, of golf um in america my favorite course is you know i really like sawgrass but i can't play it's too hard for me now i played there the other week with some um, vj and his son or not the other week the other month and it's so long from the back tees now i can't i couldn't play it but um, I always liked that course, and I played okay there in a couple of players. My, my fame there is that I've never hit in the water on the 7-8, so I'm going to keep that record. Although every time I go back there to work with someone or do something, I actually go hit a shot there just to keep the slate clean. Um, but Riviera was a great course. You know, I think it reminded me of Australia, the trees and everything they had, and even the Kaikuyu grass. That's sort of what I grew up on at my course, and it's what's in Sydney for the most part. And Australians have won a lot there. I think Baddeley won there, Allenby won there, Elkington won there, Adam Scott won there. You know, there's obviously it's got a great pull for the Australians, and they probably feel the same thing that I feel. To like a little bit of home course advantage, even though it's uh, in California there. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I truly enjoyed the conversation. Went a little bit longer than I expected, but once we got into it, the topics were were great and they just flowed. So thank you so much. Uh, best of luck with, with teaching, and we'll definitely be following you. And also, if people want to reach you you know, for uh, lessons or to, to kind of find you online, what's the best way for people to find you? They can find all my info at bradleyhughesgolf.com. So I have that's the main spot, and I'll I have a little branch off of that where I have a members only site they can find there. Uh, my ebook, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different lesson capabilities. Try and do in person and and online stuff in, in a lot of different ways. Want to help as many people just get better, or at least understand the game more, and and give them a plan to to play the golf of their life. Well, thanks again, Pro. I truly enjoyed the conversation. You are welcome. We'll do it again another time. Thanks, mate.